because they're so close to the culture and I just get it. It was just an idea that we ran with. Hi guys, and welcome to this week's Agency Insights. Today I have the wonderful George and Alice from Foolproof, a Zenzar company. These guys specialize in CRO, all of those technical details that here at Genie Goals we don't have the capacity to do. And I think it's really interesting to get the opportunity to speak to another agency that also specializes within the e-commerce sector. So George, welcome. He's one of the managing partners. And Alice is a principal analytics consultant, which is an absolute mouthful, but I hear she's the data lady. So that's all that matters, right? So thank you ever so much for joining us. We had Angela Ward, the general manager of Rod and Gun on here. And it was interesting as a Kiwi brand, she was sharing her learnings across Australia, US and UK and the differences. And I thought that was really fascinating, actually. I didn't expect the US to be as different as the other two, but clearly the old Commonwealth has something to stand for. There are differences and we've seen it in some of our CRO projects with clients who particularly are international and one country says, we're doing this, it's great, everybody should adopt it. And the honest truth is it doesn't work in every market and it really doesn't work in every market when it comes to things like just translating something. You can't just translate something and have it resonate in a country. You have to properly test it, check it with the users, actually make sure what you're writing and what you're designing resonates within their culture as well. We've got clients who are trying to globalize, but they're also aware that they can't just do the same thing for every market. They previously had offices in every single country. COVID's changed things a bit because obviously you don't have to have an office everywhere to get everything done. Tech stacks allow you to be much more flexible when it comes to kind of global design and things. So they're trying to globalize, but at the same time, they are, some of them are better that's why they come to us to do the research to make sure what they're designing, what they're building does resonate across markets. It's interesting because I remember back in the days when things like Black Friday was not a global phenomenon. And now like Black Friday <laughs> resonates almost everywhere. Don't forget Singles Day. It's, it's the one that has come from China and everyone is all of a sudden jumping on. It's on the first of November because it's 1111 as in singles day, which I quite like the idea. I like the idea of buying presents for myself all year round, but I like the idea of everyone having an excuse to do it. I don't know what singles day is, but I feel like I should. And I feel like I'm part of the right demographic, but actually with singles day, with Black Friday, we already know those things are big days and most companies will have some form of code freeze, some form of plan for that. We were talking about gifting before and we've done some work on gifting. And if you don't know what you want to do around that, there's probably some small things you can do and you can test some stuff now because you're going to have the quantity to be able to test. But actually, you probably want to design some of that stuff and start practicing it for the rest of the year. So, Alice, give me the data stuff. What would you consider a minimum viable test for uh, an experiment is that a Sophie's choice question yeah it's one of those things where it partly comes down to the number of people you have going through and how big the difference is basically there's something called statistical significance that says something is better the same or worse than something else if you're running a test that's calculated based on how many people actually go through the test and how different their answers or the result is compared to the control so standard tests basic a b test you have your new design or your new flow, and you have the old version and you run the two together. Because as you can imagine, if you ch change something on a Black Friday, you might get different results to other days. So you have to do both at the same time. But it comes back to actually how many people are going through. It's why testing is quite good at this time of year. You've got to be a bit careful because 
it won't be the same all year, but at least you'll have lots of numbers going through. There are some calculators available online if you Google kind of test calculators. And honestly, if you're not sure how long you should run a test for, it's a great place to start. Also, if your behavior on your site or your app is very different to the weekend, you just want to make sure you take that into account as well. Don't run it Monday to Friday if 90% of your traffic comes at the weekend. And for those of our listeners, watchers that are founders and, and, and smaller businesses, would you start testing from the beginning? Or would you recommend that they gain a foundation first? What are what are the steps to to getting into CRO and, and really focusing on it? I think, uh, I mean, my, my background's been in e-commerce quite a lot, so sort of 26 years plus of e-commerce, and I, I've seen it from the very early days. I think now platforms are more accessible, and people can start trialing product. You know, you could have an idea today. And this afternoon, providing you've got the stock and you're able to do it, you can be online, right? It doesn't take huge amounts of money to go through some of these sort of ready-made off-the-shelf platforms with SaaS solutions. So I think there's a lot of things that you can do at a sort of baseline. Everyone used to say best practice. And I feel like there isn't best practice anymore. It's good practice. So you hit something that's good. Best practice is for the individual company. If, if you're really asked a founder who's just starting off, you're not going to get that with 100 people yeah. or even 1,000 people coming through your website. It's going to take forever. But where we went into you know, our, our whole sort of heritage at Foolproof is around research and data and insight. That doesn't necessarily mean web analytic data. So get a focus group, get some customers, get on the street, ask people. And, and that's what we put into our CRO programs anyway, not just understanding the what, but the why. And you can only get that why really from understanding consumers and talking about it. Why did you drop out the funnel? What makes you want to use this version over that version? I think that's a really good, sort of quick and dirty way. A-B test something. Get your designers to mock something up. Print it out or put it on your iPad. Get on the street and say, which way would you like to put in a delivery date? What entices you to that product more? Is it the title or is it the image? Or should I take flat photography? I mean, there's a great example years and years ago very very large retailer spent uh, on, on clothing spent fortunes on basically doing on location shoots for a lot of their sort of catalog so you're talking makeup artists photograph locations so flying hotels all that sort of stuff and we tested those shots we tested mannequin with flesh color different flesh colors transparent mannequins and then flat table so just putting it out on the table and actually a couple of them were ironed out and others were sort of scrunched up the results came out doesn't make a single bit of difference for that retailer so rather than conversion going up what they did was they cut out seven figures out of their photography like their, their production getting things to market they could get things live quicker they could trial different colors they could play around with Photoshop and and trying different things because you didn't have the location shoot. That's something that could be done via data and statistical significance for them. But a founder could easily do that and just trial. This season, I'm going to try a few shots on location. The rest I'm going to do in the studio, £10 a, a shot type thing. So I think it depends on where you are in your maturity. Just test and trial, whether that's one-to-one testing or AB across web analytic, AB multivariate platforms. I mean, the only thing I would add to that, I've 
debated with other people in data the benefits of both large websites and small websites and apps. Basically, what it comes down to is you can get an answer on both but you do have to take a different test approach. Big websites, obviously, with large traffic amounts are about that quantitative data. You'll get your statistical significance. You'll be able to do that testing. If you have a smaller website, you can actually have the luxury of qualitative data instead. It's just a different approach. If you can set up a website and you can pay for a few pounds to have a bunch of people do online video testing, it's not quite as good as getting feedback and being able to ask people questions. But there are ways of getting qualitative insights around what you want to release and what you want to produce. But you can never do that on the scale for a big website. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's a good step on the the wagon in terms of understanding exactly what your consumer wants. I think a lot of the businesses that fail in the first few years who have just got it started either they're so product-led that they don't listen to their consumers at all or they just don't nail the journey. And actually, keeping the journey as simple as possible is always going to win. The amount of times, as a very big online shopper, the amount of times I bail because you've declined my proceeding to the next stage for whatever reason and haven't explained why. I would love to know how many consumers do bail from that. I imagine there are quite a few of the tests you run. Yes, people not getting notifications is a... Yeah, that's the thing. If people don't know why they can't progress, they don't have the information that comes up in quite a lot of tests, actually. we've got, Or if they don't take you back to the point at which you've erred and you've got to scroll through a whole page, no one can be bothered to do that. It's just painful. And you remember that as a painful e-commerce experience rather than that was easy. I'm slightly worried she's been talking to some of our clients, George. <laughs> what can I say? Back when I did work with pharma, because you're buying a pharmaceutical product, you've got a higher intent to buy because you need that product for a reason, but still trying to make that consumer journey as slick as possible. And I remember going through all the tests and bringing in some focus groups, videoing exactly what their experience was while they were using our website. And it was so funny because it was exactly the same as us as a consumer. So it takes you back to well, hang on a second. Is it easy on mobile? Because actually that's where the majority of consumers are probably going to be shopping. And you may have built a beautiful website, but if it doesn't fit on mobile and it doesn't have that same level of interactivity and that same, this is the error, it's much harder to find on mobile. You need to be guided. I mean, if you want me to do a rant on what people don't track and the reports people look at compared to the reports people should be looking at and caring about. So they're not working on mobile thing. You need to know what proportion of people on your site are on mobile. Very basic thing. But people often look at the wrong measures. So they do have a habit of looking at things like revenue and conversion rate, which are good measures in themselves. There's nothing wrong with those. But if, for example, you're going, oh, well, mobile doesn't matter because most people convert on desktop, not mobile. (laughs) That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) If you're designing for desktop, they're going to convert on desktop. And also people go, oh, well, nobody uses a iPhone 6S anymore. Everybody's on the latest iPhones. Do you know that? Have you checked? Because those things can be checked and often they haven't. And actually I've seen designs where you've got a carousel and things to people to click. And because of the different resolutions, people have no idea they're meant to scroll. And that's a bit of a problem. Most analysts will be able to produce a report that tells you what people are using to access your app or your website or other things but doesn't always get sent across. It's the same with the error issues. If the errors are there, we should be able to see how people leave afterwards, if they're seeing them, those things. But whether they're getting to the right people. So that's kind of some of it in the reporting layer, but some of that starts a lot higher up. 
it starts with some of the more senior people in the business going, we need to look at better measures. We love our conversion rate. We have confidence that an increased conversion rate means more revenue. Great. That's a good starting point. But actually, that measure is somewhat removed from what they're looking at and what they're doing. So if you've got a website, you actually want to be able to say, how many people are viewing our products? That's a great indicator of how many people will eventually buy. The more people that get to product, you hope the more people are going to add to basket, the more people that are going to you know, eventually convert. But for some websites, the conversion might be quite a long way between when they first view the product and when they buy it. Mm -hmm. So companies could do with sitting down and going, what do we want to do with our website? Okay, we know what we want to achieve. How do we measure what we want to achieve? And then what are the measures that can get us there? And it's never revenue. Revenue is a proxy for profit. But revenue itself actually isn't profit. It's just a proxy. And every measure you use is going to be. So why not look at which other proxies are out there? You mentioned like the different devices and laptop versus mobile. But I think it's also in the phase of where that user is, right? You've got discovery mode and then you've got purchase mode. And it used to be that people would want to discover on a mobile app and then probably purchase on laptop. From a personal experience, I do quite a lot of my discovery probably on desktop or, or, or laptop, right? And then to purchase, I do it on the phone because it's a double click, face recognition. I don't need to type anything in. So I think they're some of the measurements that are quite good to look at and don't look at them in isolation. So I think that's the other doom and gloom. People look at some of those KPIs in isolation. If you ask the business person, for example, what's a good customer? Depends who you ask, right? A receptionist would say, oh, I love the client that comes in, smiles, says, hello, how am I doing? You ask a marketing person, someone who, who read one of our white papers. You ask the finance director, it'll be someone who's paid on time within the terms. You ask any other leader, it could be someone who's given us a case study. So I think if you take that to like holistic e-commerce, you really have to look at those KPIs and say, what other influences are in those KPIs and how you work that out? And sometimes that's kind of the magic starting before you're too big, before you've got the silos of departments in your e-commerce journey. So again, different audiences. So you have someone who's an e-commerce manager who looks after the whole of your e-commerce. Then you have some of the enterprises who only look at I only look after the search function or I only look after the brand or the landing page or a specific area. And that's a nightmare, right? When you're trying to convert and build upon that and you've got to get different departments with their own KPIs all going towards a different thing. I think some of the earlier day getting your analytics set up and really look at data and insight, I think just as much as the creative or the tech, uh, people underestimate how much you have to sort of set up analytics not just the data and the numbers but a story right having those dashboard reports what do they do people get them all the time oh here's the conversion rate here's that here's that it's just a number but if you've got people in your business that are able to tell you a story around a funnel there's a problem here because i'm imagining this has happened let's go and get some qualitative research around that with one-to-one 
it then starts building pictures of why things are happening, not just the what. You as the, the business or you as whoever is developing that website needs to fix those things, needs to get them integrated before any other agency or any other form of marketing can really happen because they are the crooks, as you say, of understanding exactly what's going on. The amount of businesses, I think, that underestimate that when they start. I've had this before where someone's gone, just turn the website on. And it's like, okay, well, we've turned the website on, but we're not collecting any data from it. So what's the point in turning it on? Say we make a bit of money, that's fine, but we can't track them. Can't can't do absolutely anything with those consumers. So fantastic. We've made, I don't know, however much money by turning it on for one day, but it's not going to help the business in the long run, actually. Oddly enough, Google Analytics has a really low barrier to entry when it comes to free analytics tools. There's a load of other good ones out there as well. And most are relatively cheap just to put on. One of the areas that I see missing often, marketing, if they've put Google on, you can sometimes do something but it's good performance monitoring as well. That's one of the things that if you haven't got that in place like now, have a look at how hard it would be to get performance monitoring on your site or app now before November, because actually November and December are when you're going to have those real peaks in orders, peaks in traffic. You need to know if you have a problem on your site. It's probably too late to fix it now, but you can get that tool on your site now and you can gather that information And then you can fix it over the next year because some of those problems that you've had in the past where you've been kicked out of a journey or something hasn't gone through, it's because they haven't got, they just haven't got capacity. We know sites break, but you know, how close are they to breaking? You don't know that unless you've tracked it. You could actually be this close to breaking your site. If you get a bit more traffic, a really good marketing campaign sends it over the edge. You don't even know it. I miss my startup days, the days where you send out an email campaign and you wait for it to topple because you're like every year, this is the big campaign that's about to go out. We know there's going to be a huge surge in traffic and we are just watching the dashboard of the number of users going up and waiting to see what breaks first. Is it the warehouse or the website? Because it's going to be one or the other. I'm assuming you always aim to break the warehouse. That's where I go with that. So I personally... If I'm going to order something, I will wait till 31 minutes past because that gives me a whole 14 minutes in which I know that I can probably cancel my order or change something before. If I do it at 29 minutes past, probably already picked. Never going to have a chance. Using those major retailer platforms, knowing how much they charge consumers, I think I would now be biased towards the smaller But that's only because I've worked in e-commerce. My partner definitely doesn't feel that way because there isn't that understanding of what an entrepreneur or a business or an e-commerce company goes through. Do you feel the same way? Has any of your behaviours changed? I I must have done 15 years of e-commerce and hated purchasing online. So I was responsible for building out some major high street businesses would not shop online because uh, the story used to be like there are two types of shoppers, right? Those that want to trust online and those who want to go in and touch and feel the goods. And if it's clothing, try it on or just want to feel the product. And I think that still kind of exists to, to this day, but the barriers are broken down with multi-channel, omni-channel. When Amazon came and delivered the promise of next day or returns are easy and or the, the one-click just in my head, it kind of switched. And I started using e-commerce and going, I kind of trust this. I don't know why it wasn't the case before. Some of those things I, I 
are now kind of appreciate. And I think with the gifting element that we've been looking into in, in sort of Christmas times, I've noticed more that I'm trying to look after the small guys. I'm trying to find different things. And with a few retailers, we've done a few roundtables and, and things in the, in the past. And there is a huge opportunity for the startups or the sort of very small or to medium retailers in that gifting space because they can do things with their logistics. They can do things with their processes that Amazon can't do. For example, thinking about the recipient and the gifter. It's a two-way angle. I want to feel good that I've sent you, Hannah, a present. You want to feel good that you've received one. And it just doesn't happen. Someone can easily pick and pack something, make it look nice. And luxury brands, for example, they're masters at it. Spend money on the box, spend something on the ribbon, make sure it gets delivered with precision. That enables your brand to go further than Amazon cardboard box get it to me tomorrow. You're completely right though. I had the pleasure of speaking to Alice from Posh Totti and they're a personalised jewellery company. And it was interesting because even during COVID, they have managed to keep personalising jewellery. But that personalised touch, I mean, it's what made Not On The High Street famous. But it's also, as you say, an advantage that the little guys can do that the big guys aren't able to keep up with. I know they then have the challenge of if they see a surge of demand, they've got to manage to keep up with personalising all of that. But it's something they're able to control within their marketing levers, whereas a big business is just not going to be able to print on or, or engrave on that scale. I do like pack coffee from a commerce point of view. Although they have effectively one product, which is coffee and coffee machines, they have a few different kind of payment models within that. And that's an interesting one for me because they obviously have the subscription model. They also have gifting. So you can gift a £50 voucher to somebody, which I've done in the past, which is great because it feels more personalized than sending somebody an Amazon voucher. It's a kind of nice price point in terms of being like, okay, I don't mind spending that on a gift for somebody I care about. Uh, And they can pick it all and organize the delivery and things. But obviously, if they didn't have that, I would never do it. It's the same for other companies that do subscription. A lot of them will do subscription and it might be you pay annually or you pay monthly but it can sometimes be really hard to get that kind of gift option. I've done a lot of weirdly enough raffle prizes for uh, an event called Measure Camp. And so kind of organizing raffle prizes. So you want something you can give somebody and not worry about canceling cards or other things. So I've tried it with some of those brain training apps. There's one I've got. I had to kind of email them and go, do you do like a gift voucher (laughs) and they're like no have a free one but it's that kind of thing having those multiple business models and having something that you can do just as a gift i think that's quite valuable not enough subscription models seem to offer that as an option no i completely agree it's something we really struggled with at naked wines i know it was something that you wanted to be able to gift you wanted to be able to do it but actually just how it fit within the business was quite a challenge in setting it up are there any other things that you would say businesses have to do or in general now i think Taking product out, you get the product, you get these sort of like different prices for him, for her. I, I think the delivery match, again, too late if you haven't done it for now, but splitting orders into multiple addresses. I want to do my shopping. Physically, I go into a store, I pick things up off the shelf, I pay for them, and then you then split it out. If there was a lot more retailers actually allowing you to put separate delivery addresses against items, that's... That's one way that they can add value. Another one is often when you do gift and they have a, a gifting option, you know, it's very transactional. It's like, well, 
I can remove the price for you and just issue a gift receipt. Uh, and then you can add a little note. And it's usually on the A4 piece, right? And it's in the same font and it's in the same text and people just don't really read it. So they've missed the whole sort of, you know, thanks for everything or, or whatever your note is. So I think there could be something in, especially with smaller retailers that can easily get a card. And if they wanted to handwrite something for you, you could pay a premium for it or, or package it. But I think there's just these little touches away from that. So the most logical and easy thing is gift wrap, right? So get in the pick and pack, get into gift wrap. That's one stage. Um, maybe better packaging, things like that. I think people are missing that. It's the delight of receiving. And we, yeah. we were thinking, how do you share that experience? It's relatively easy to, to add a voice note or use technology on top of what an existing retailer would have, plugins and things like that now, to, to just delight a little bit more, look into the courier services. And I'm not saying that this is doable, but why hasn't a courier service created a version of, I know that this package is for a birthday. Let me knock on the door, deliver it. Rather than have it chucked at you, you know, can you sign here? Say happy birthday. There's lots of opportunities that people could probably come up with. There's lots of opportunities retailers can come up with. And, and there's maybe somewhere for a business to create a, a moment, you know, there's a huge value in the transaction of giving. And, and one of my things I've been trying to do is on subscriptions, why not give a subscription as a gift? It's a much better gift because monthly they'll remember you and say thank you rather than spending that amount of money in one go on something else. And it's a little bit more thoughtful, I think. Sometimes there are definitely things that you would not buy for yourself, but you'd like to have them bought for you. I don't know what it is, but there's this value in, I don't want to spend my own money on that, but I would love it if I got it as a gift. So I think there hasn't been enough brainstorming around that whole transactional experience, whether that's handwritten notes, whether it's the courier, whether it's wrapping or whatever. There's, there's lots of elements that I think would just make someone's day. If I can give you one example, I want to say thank you to my leadership last year when i came on to foolproof took over as managing partner i, I kind of want to say look it's going to be a big scale journey we're all in it here's a thank you and i thought i'll get a hamper i just didn't want to do the default i want to put some effort into this well, why don't you build something yourself george and i went to my local place in the village a cheese and wine shop and said oh can you can you do me a hamper yeah, of course how much do you want to spend do you want me to do this and they put together a beautiful bottle of wine crackers some chutney, some cheeses, and then said, we can put it together, but we, we can't deliver it. So I need now a cardboard box. And I was trying to get it to India, USA. So I found myself going on Amazon buying, uh, it was 25 boxes, cardboard boxes, waiting for them to come, took them to the retailer, said, could you put the hampers? You know, we had to measure everything as well before I bought the boxes, took them over there. They then gave them to me. I had a couple of people that don't drink. So that had to be non-alcoholic, had to be marked. I had to then sit there writing labels. And I thought, why am I writing them? I could, I could make it nice and pretty. I went and downloaded some software, bought some Avery labels, printed out hamper labels. The, the thing took days. I had that story of 
I put that together. It felt really good to give something that I had spent time on. But at the same time, I was thinking, isn't it crazy that to just do something out of the ordinary, it's on me to go and do all this. I think there is loads and loads of opportunities. I completely agree. And Amanda will smile because she knows about this, but I recently had to buy an engagement ring. And all I will say is it got delivered by DPD. Have you ever had anything so unsatisfying as a multiple thousand pound ring delivered by DPD? Don't get me wrong. The box was nice inside. There was lots of bubble wrap, but that's not special. That's not a once in a lifetime thing. I was actually really disheartened by that process because I was thinking I'm buying it online, which is risky. You could buy it in store. It would probably be a nicer experience as well. But actually, more people are buying online for the convenience. I wanted to buy it online. Okay, they offered me a specials return label all paid for but so they should for something that price and actually why wasn't it a special experience if you want someone to come back and buy the wedding rings from you as well you hope they're going to be a return customer and therefore you need to wow them at this stage to get the money later on it's such a no-brainer for me but it was a very big high street jewelers and one that would consider themselves premium and that's still the customer experience they gave me that does not reflect the in-store experience at all and it's just so subpar. I was talking to the um, founder of Taylor and Hart, literally, the week before about the experience online and how they can make it amazing. They're going down the personalized route. They're going down the route of picking exactly what you want, ensure to get that. But still, that whole piece around how to amaze and delight the customer at the point of delivery in that final mile, which isn't online, I think it's so underrated. Yeah. Well, look, I've ended up having a really interesting conversation and I think it's been quite cathartic, almost like a rant. The things that are really frustrate us around e-commerce, the things that frustrate us about the industry, but also the things that people can take and learn from in terms of what are the opportunities? What are the spaces that we see where there is potential for businesses to grow in and actually how those small businesses can get recognized, how that they can stand out from the mass herd. All of your paid marketing, it's going to be at a higher cost than it's probably ever been before because there's more competition than ever. So actually standing out from the crowd, something that Thursday, the dating app have done a very good job at recently. They chained an intern to a street in London, Liverpool street. And it says worst internship ever, please download Thursday. And after a thousand downloads, she got released. Well, thank you ever so much, Bo, for coming on today. I really appreciate your time, particularly late in the evening, but honestly, it has been really fascinating. 